Welcome to the Five and On Podcast. I am your host, Shane Hazen. Coming up on this episode, I'm joined once again by editor Rayman Nazir Ali as we interview Henry Jenkins, author of Convergence Culture, Where Old and New Media Collide, a book from 2008 about predominantly the concept of transmedia. If you're unfamiliar with this, is the idea that books, video games, comics, uh, all media can be tell the same story or be interconnected in a certain way. And the, the concept has normally been taken over by intellectual property, by the studios, but that doesn't mean there's a lot of promise in it. And um, the book's also particularly prescient right now for not only the 2008 strike, but the current strike too. Um, anyway, what I've been watching this week, I finally got around to a movie that's been on a bunch of uh, mid-year top, Tens, how to blow up a pipeline, which was great. I, I I wouldn't say I've having a bummy year, but I've been having trouble with newer movies this year. And how to blow up a pipeline not only has that vibe of kind of normalizing eco terrorism, which I think is probably going to be something that we're going to see more and more movies about in the next coming decades, especially things like the fires in Maui right now. But the thing I didn't see a lot talked about because so much of like the first half of it's about making bombs. It really has a vibe of like William Freakin Sorcerer, which you know, we're a week out after William Freakin died. So that was it just was a very it was a very interesting thriller that it's based on a nonfiction book. But at the same time, it played pretty straight, like a very on the pulse, zeitgeisty pulse, but like a straight Hollywood thriller, like a low budget one, but very tense, very, very well made. But the crazier thing I saw this week was a movie from 1955 called Dementia. Some of I'm, I might be late to the game on this, even though more people I've just talked with have not actually seen it. Um, it, it's a. The reason I heard about it and wanted to watch it was uh, on the movies that made me podcast. Daniel Klaus uh, mentioned it and said it's a definite precursor to Eraserhead. And when I finally saw it, it truly is it's a mostly it's a mostly silent horror movie that's under an hour and when i say silent it's just no dialogue it's not silent but it's about a woman who it's it's hard to describe it's she she the movie opens and closes with her dreaming so for a 50s movie yeah like it has to have a, a framing device to set up the dream logic but for an American movie with this much dream logic in the 50s, it where the hell did this movie come from? It is uh, crazy experimental, uh, really effective, really tense. The movie is also shockingly modern, especially in terms of trying to deal with a woman's plight. She just gets harassed in nightmarish ways the entire movie by men. And I could see why this movie might have gotten buried because of its subject line on it. It's directed by John Parker, uh, who I, I don't, I tried to look up as much information I, I could on it. And they, I guess he had some family money. He'd moved to LA, tried, he's been trying to make movies, but this is the only movie he made in this movie, I guess kind of destroyed him. Uh, but the subject came from his secretary, a dream his secretary had. And 
I'll put it this way. If I was in New York in 1955 and the censor board allowed me to see dementia there and I saw it on a double bill with just say, I don't know, Stanley Kubrick's Killer Kiss. If I had to pick between the two directors who was going to be the master of cinema, I would have gone with John Parker. So I watched a version by, uh, I believe it's Cohen Media Archives. That's, I was talking to Ted Haycraft, our oft co-host, and he, he had pointed me to a review by Glenn Erickson that said that it was mis- this version was missing some key shots. Now, the history behind this, Dementia was bought by, was it Jack L. Harris, the guy that produced The Blob? And there's the, the history behind it then goes, they put a narration over it, and the narration's done by none other than Ed McMahon. And... Uh, it explains just whatever is happening in the movie. But the reason it got to this point was it went through a bunch of censorship issues, particularly in New York. And so they had to cut it up significantly. And I mean, so, and so I guess the version Cohen Media Archive put out missed one key shot. Uh, and after Ted pointed this out to me, I went back and tried to find the shot. And I did. I'm a, It's tricky because it's there's there's some intense things that happen in the movie that are for 1955 are crazy. But today, like the gore is something that like you would see before 10 o'clock on TV easily without batting an eye on a commercial. And so, yeah, there was a gory shot missing, but it's also a real one. When I saw that and, you know, Glaren Erickson's complaint that this was a key shot in the movie, but having seen the version without it, this gets to an editorial argument we always have in, a, in editing rooms of you know do you need the shot or do you not need this shot and when the impact is and we always talk about things like um, when do you get the realization of a narrative point we uh, one of my favorite terms we use is like is do you get it on the a side or the b side of a shot and what happened is you miss that shot but on the b side of that missing shot you still get the narrative impact i'm trying to talk in vague ways to not spoil this dream logic movie which i'd also argue you can't really spoil dream logic but that's fine. Whatever. Back to this interview with Henry Jenkins. Uh, this is another one of these, like last episode, that has been in the can for six months. I, It's not dated in as much as we talk about the 2008 strike without acknowledging the current Writers and Screen Actor Guild strike. Uh, we may, we talk about the TV HBO TV adaptation of Last of Us, and it just started when we did this interview. Um, but transmedia in particular, like, it's... there's a future a strong future in this which is hard to talk about just because it's only in the corporate space and as we also talk about the problems right now with it or or the limitations of it right now are that it's strictly based on marketing like say you want a transmedia story to be told over a course of a series of novels and other comic books or other medias usually it's off of uh, what Henry t- calls the mothership, say a big franchise studio movie. And that's where the majority of the concentration from a creative standpoint, much less the monetary standpoint is going to come around. And so these side issues, side parts don't, don't hold up as well, or just don't seem as important, seem very flimsy. Uh, we talk a lot about the Wachowskis particularly believed in this for the first were the last the, I guess now middle two Matrix movies. I want I, I 
we had to update those terms on that. And that was one where creativity went to all the parts of the media. But we, we, we delve into all the franchises right now. Henry's, for someone that uh, is a professor at USC and previously taught with expertise on video games at MIT, was very straightforward, very down to earth, and just felt like, honestly, one of us. So I hope you enjoy this interview with Henry Jenkins along with Raymond Nazir Ali. Henry, uh, so I came to the uh, Convergence Culture of the book because of Raymond. Raymond was the first person that introduced me to it because we had had this conversation about, um, I we, we have a mutual friend that worked at Sundance and I was having this conversation with her about, she introduced me to the concept of transmedia, but it was a more of a grassroots thing of more of uh, people were trying to get their names out there need to like, a movie's not enough anymore was what kind of what her vantage point was. And so then Raymond, when I brought this up, he said, you should check out Convergence Culture. Yeah, and I, I had come across it in a film studies class I was taking in college at UT. And it was interesting. What really drew me to it is like, especially the transmedia storytelling aspect of it, was that this was kind of something I was like sort of abstractly feeling or interested in. And after reading um, about it, it kind of gave the vocabulary and the words and the kind of like little points to so those ideas could coalesce around. And it was very kind of, I mean, it still is with me, just the idea of how to do transmedia storytelling and how do you do it in a world that's the way it is now. Like, you know, or uh, a, a movie might come out, but then you might you might be taking in as much of the discourse on the movie is as big a part of it as the movie itself. So maybe you spend even more time on the discourse. So Yeah, so maybe we should take a step back and define a little bit of our terminology okay. here. So... So Convergence Culture comes out in 2006, and it really is about the ways that the internet is changing how stories operate in our culture and how audiences engage with stories. The word transmedia by itself means across media. So it in some ways is an adjective looking for a noun. That is, it needs to modify something. So it could be transmedia storytelling, it could be transmedia performance, it could be transmedia branding or any number of other things people have explored. But transmedia storytelling is what I'm writing about in Convergence Culture. And Convergence Culture takes as its core case study, The Matrix. So let's start there. The Matrix is three films initially, now four. Uh, it's something like 20 comic book stories written by some really top flight creators like Paul Chadwick, who did Concrete. It's uh, a series of animated shorts done mostly from Eastern Asian masters, Japanese, Taiwanese, so forth, each of whom have their own kind of cult following as anime filmmakers. And it's a series of video games. The standalone game was one that included close to an hour of new footage featuring a ghost and Niobe from the film series. And the Walshowski siblings uh, had described in the documentary attached to these films that they had gone to Japan for the Tokyo premiere of the original Matrix movie 
and on the way back started sketching out this elaborate plan where stories would be crawled across every available media channel, right? And they developed a strategy for future matrix properties. Now, it's no accident they were coming back from Tokyo because they were really building on the media mix strategies that had dominated Japan for a long, Japanese popular culture for a long time. In Japan, they typically start with uh, comics or manga, which the big phone books there are testing grounds for maybe a dozen different stories at a time. Those that take off and have a following get published as standalone collections, but they're almost instantly converted to animated television shows. The really successful ones there become animated films. Uh, they may become game content, either card games or computer games. They may be gagacha prizes, these little characters that come in plastic bulbs that you get out of gagacha machines. They may be the theme of a, a tavern or bar where people dress up. They may be the subject matter of cosplay at Yoyogi Park or in Akihabara, the fan district. And they may even be kabuki or no theater performances, which more and more live theater in Japan is the extension of a transmedia or media mix story. So the matrix was the testing ground that and the analysis that surrounded the matrix really got Hollywood thinking. Convergence culture comes out during the writer's strike. And I've heard stories of strikers passing it up and down the picket lines because the strike was heavily about how do writers get compensated for what Hollywood wanted to call ancillary content. New media stuff, yeah. Okay. Yes, exactly. That was going to be promotional. Hollywood thought of it as promotional content. And traditionally, you don't get paid for promotion. But if you create a character that appeared in promotional material that later feeds back into the dominant content, how do you compensate it for? So the writers were struggling with this. And the book comes out and it's making the case that all of this stuff may be marketing, but it's also an extension of storytelling. And that was a very useful argument for the Writers Guild to be making. And so I ended up doing briefings for the Writers Guild and so forth. And by the time we were done with the strike, you suddenly saw transmedia units on Heroes and Lost and other television shows which began to conceptualize what they were doing as transmedia content and flash down to the current day and there's an awful lot of transmedia production uh, going we, we should be clear you mentioned in our in the in introductory emails that this is in this is this book is from 2006 so it is now what 14 years old there's an ipod uh, ipod on the cover there's um it's before the 2008 crash it's um, the opening introduction, you talk about um, being frustrated with your phone and you just want a simple phone and it's like a year yeah. year out from the smartphone. That is the most embarrassing really? passage in the <laughs> entire book. You also have the mention of the first movie streamed in, in December 2004 to be streamed on a, on a phone. Like, um, I guess, wait, first off, do you think that transmedia... What are the reasons why transmedia hasn't taken off yet? Is it still just gestation period? Like you, you mentioned, the strike is was the 
reluctance to pay writers or creators for some of this stuff um like where do you where do you see convergence culture at right now well i think we went through a period of time of real excitement among the storytelling class and these could be creative industry people or independent artists who were really picked up on the transmedia banner and pulled it in all directions and i think that's still going on but the word has started to drop away because it got overused and overhyped and you know no one was quite sure what it meant um, but i think we are deep deep in a transmedia culture which is to say that if you look at marvel cinematic universe if we look at the star wars universe the integration of television and film today may be the most vivid example of what a more mature transmedia system might look like. So if you went to see Doctor Strange and what is it, the multiverse? The madness, so, yeah. Anyway, the multiverse film, you would you if you would get more out of it if you had seen um WandaVision. Uh, WandaVision, if you had seen What If, if you'd seen Loki. There's, you know, once Disney took over the television production for Marvel, it became possible to fully integrate the storytelling across them. And I think Doctor Strange is maybe where Disney has gone the furthest along that line. Prior to that, you had an elaborate intertextual world. That is, there were, you know, 20 plus Marvel films and integration of stories and characters across them. But television lagged behind. That is, Netflix got stuck with uh, a kind of back backwaters of the Marvel universe, where they didn't they could refer to things that happen in the Marvel films, but the stuff on television didn't feed back into the films. And Marvel has always sort of tried to keep the films independent of the comics, even as they're rating the comics for material, old storylines, character bases, and so forth. But now with Disney Plus, we're seeing a pretty integrated system. And I would say the same is true for Disney Plus's uh, Mandalorian and some of the other Star Wars films that are gradually extending outward from the Sky Luke and Anakin Skywalker saga to incorporate a broader range of events and characters in the Star Wars universe and doing what comics and novels had done around Star Wars for a long time prior to that, or the video games had done, Knights of the Old Republic and so forth. Okay. So that's the, that is the Hollywood model. It's called the mothership model. The idea is that the mothership is whatever is the cash cow for the franchise. More often than not, it is the film. And the idea of the mothership model is the film has to stand on its own. It has to be understandable by a casual viewer who has not consumed anything else. It may gain depth and resonance for those people who know more. The modern multiplex film is full of Easter eggs and rabbit holes, which allow us to go outward from the text and make connections across it. But the, the real extension takes place on these other media that orbit around the mothership. Now, on the East Coast, the independent media model was, in fact, much tighter integration. All the parts are equal, right? So if you told a story that consisted of lots of YouTube videos that led out to websites through 
something like an alternate reality game structure, there is a sense that every piece of media is equal and the integration across them is much more elaborate and complicated than is going to be in the mothership model. And then we might look at the documentary model where a documentary filmmaker always shoots more material than they're going to use in the film or television documentary itself. So what you including whole sequences that get cut out at the last minute and a lot extensive interviews. So what do you do with that material? Well, now you can stick it on YouTube. You can stick it on a website. You can build other content around it. It can be DVD extras. So documentary filmmakers are really building a transmedia model all of their own. And I would say the open doc lab at MIT is the place to go to learn more about how that documentary model is operating. I guess the question I have is uh, for, for transmedia to, to evolve more, it seems like you need to have some of these other medias not be, I think, um, just equal or the creation creators be equal, which the matrix model seems like the closest yeah. of that. But with documentaries, it's cut scenes. If, if, if it's a cut scene, like you, it, it, it's, is it designed as a, not designed as an How does the MIT model work when like if a cut scene is cut from a movie or documentary, it's generally something that. Well, it may be a self-contained sequence that's now on the web. And I think if you look at most PBS documentaries, they have a pretty modest, but substantial version of this, right? Or you may have used a couple of sound bites from a long interview that has a lot of depth to it. You can stick the entire interview on the web and that becomes part of the experience of the documentary. A more elaborate version of that might do something like model the space using some 3D modeling technology so that we can see this is the shopping mall that the terrorists attacked. And Let's see how all how the space is laid out. Let's look at it from all these different angles, or could be a series of artifacts and documents, right? The there was one about the Lockerbie crash that had a suitcase full of documents that were and artifacts that were found around the crash site that figure in the documentary, but we might want to examine them more closely. Right, you could go down the line. Anything that's in the documentary can be broken out and be objects for examination more closely, and may help build out a world around around the docu the documentary. But you could also, in theory, have multiple intersecting documentaries. Um, it's not a documentary, but I'm thinking about Small Acts, the British series about the Jamaican community in London that was what five six films and there were things like a newspaper that was distributed around it that took you deeper into that world and some of the people there there's some crossover of characters and locations across those films the web there's a web presence that takes us deeper into it all of which is not a Marvel movie by a long shot. It's a pretty serious, you know, cultural document. It's not a documentary, but it's telling the history of this community through a series of fictional and semi-fictional stories. But 
it nevertheless is a transmedia experience. And where do you think the uh, um, the state of, so a lot of these transmedia experiences, and obviously this is easier, kind of <clears throat> stay within the audiovisual medium, right? Between TV, movies, or uh, movies and uh, YouTube clips and stuff. And it seems like there's fewer instances of extension into all the other moves like video games or tabletop games, role-playing games, or ARGs, books, or anything like that. And do, do you think that there is there work, is there a lot of interesting work being done in that case? Or if there isn't, I guess, why? Well, I think, for example, we could look at live experiences, pop-up experiences, uh, like uh, the Bridgerton experience that was not, you know, not so long ago, or... There's any number of them, right? The strange, stranger thing experience that have been location specific places, right? That you go and immerse yourself in the world. We could think of something like these multimodal experiences of art. Um, I went to a Monet exhibit in Atlanta, not terribly long ago. And if you, as you enter the Monet exhibit, you pass through a physical reconstruction of Monet's house and the gardens. Then you go into a space where there are pictures, reproductions of the paintings on the wall. And then you go through a space where there's 360 degree projections, interactive projections on the wall. And you come out and you put on goggle VR and experience the paintings in a different way. Well, we're seeing those same kinds of things take place around film and television shows, particularly the geekier shows if you go to San Diego Comic-Con. That area around the convention center is often ringed these days with pop-up experiences of all kinds. Um, and I saw things like the, the, the carts that you ride through the city on, the, the rickshaws which was made up to look like the throne and Game of Thrones, for example. So all of that, I would say, is the physical extension of transmedia, not quite as elaborate as the theatrical experiences in Japan that I referred to earlier, but along that same axis. Or we could think about reproductive props, right, and models as extensions of story worlds that we as fans buy put on our bookshelves, wear as keychains, you know, use as part of cosplay and so forth as extensions of the story. Games certainly still, video game adaptations of films, and now we're seeing television adaptations of video games get a certain amount of buzz right now. Uh, all of those things are very much part of a transmedia culture. And as, com as a comic fan, I, there's a whole section at my comic shop that's completely dedicated to TV and film tie-in comics, uh, which I assume sell well because they have them right next to the cash register <laughs> in that impulse by zone, right? But everything from Star Wars and Star Trek to, you know, SpongeBob to, you know, take your pick, Disney... Disney amusement park attractions, all of that is there, Riverdale, you know, so forth. Big area of extensions of stories from television into comics. In the old days, they would have been straight novelizations in effect of the show. Now they extend that show in a variety of directions. Or if you go to the DC section of the comic shop, you 
at least until recently, could see the Batman 66 comics, which took mm -hmm. a specific vintage Batman TV series and in, suddenly in a contemporary world was taking that version of the characters and giving them their own books, which certainly appeals to old timer comic fans like I was myself. reading Batman 89 too, was into that. And then Batman 66 could do crossovers of Man from Uncle or Wild Wild West or any number of other shows of that vintage Brady Bunch, I think they did. What is what do you think the best model of uh, of um, transmedia is right now? Because I mean, you mentioned Star Trek and Star Wars. It seems like a lot of their fan base, specifically Star Trek, just because it was a canceled show for you know so long, and then it's expanded into a animated show, and then there were so many novel novelist novelizations, and and that was that seemed like a successful branching of that until it turned into the movies, and even then, as much as the current version of it's kind of bleh, but. Um, and in Star Wars, the same way too, where like there was years where they where there was no question what, as much as Lucas said he was going to make the prequels, it wasn't never a definite thing, and so the the canon expanded that way. But what it, I guess if those are good examples of the past, but what do you think is the best version of it right now? Well, I would still think Star Wars, Star Trek, and Marvel are the biggest examples. I think Star Trek is doing it mostly in television now. Yeah. But when you look at the range of Star Trek shows being produced, with Star Trek Discovery going into the far future at this point, with Picard reuniting the, the next generation characters and picking up old storylines there with uh, Strange New Worlds, picking up on Captain Pike and some of the beloved Trek characters from classic Trek, and with Below Deck, decks having both new characters and doing crossovers with deep space nine in particular they are bridging with the new shows a range of other earlier trek incarnations so the truck has never been a more fully integrated system and never one with quite as many series going at the same time reflecting different taste and i'm not even talking about star trek prodigy which i think deserves not to be talked <laughs> okay about. i had i heard a friend was recommending that to me um i, I uh, but it also seems like like star wars used to be the example of that and you mentioned the success that star wars has had on disney plus but it also seemed like whenever disney bought lucasfilm they made the decision that the uh, old canon was 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 erased completely yeah and that was a pr disaster for them because for that corner of fandom that really is about knowledge and mastery, to erase that knowledge or discredit that knowledge, cut them off from investment in the series. And I think probably helped pave the way for the pushback on Last Jedi, where toxic masculine fans really went to town on that film. So it turned out to have been a calculated mistake. And I think they are now building a new backstory through television that will do does some of the same mythology and raids that earlier mythology and brings some of those characters along from animated series earlier or novels earlier into characters for the newer track series 
And I think the way that uh, Andor built on Rogue One suggests a fuller realization of what they'd started out saying, which was that every other Star Wars film was going to be non, not part of the canon of the Skywalker saga, but was going to explore some other point of entry into Star Wars. That's the work the television is now doing after the failure of the and mm. solo movie is and do you think there is because two questions do you think there is a way to do that sort of uh, removing something from a canon because as these transmedia worlds grow and grow they're, they're going to be massive and there'd be so many different texts and it might be hard to to you know fit them all together but one is there is there a way to do that correctly in your opinion and then also is there sort of a critical mass like should is uh does it hurt the universe if it gets too big and if it's too unwieldy and uh, um, is there sort of a critical mass you think well this is where i think we would look at comics and say something like dc's crisis of infinite earth or the periodic meltdowns and rebooting of uh marvel cinema marvel's universe uh, the ultimate marvel series for example all are attempts to create jumping on points for new fans because as these stories become more elaborate and ingrown, then it becomes harder for new people to jump into them. You know, if to understand Marvel today, you really have to watch all of the films from all of the four phases to date. That's a hell of a lot of time before you can fully be on top of a new release. And meanwhile, there are new generations of fans coming of age all the time. And they hope to keep drawing adult fans in you know, adults into becoming fans, Marvel Cinematic Unit. So there's definitely a question of how large it can get. I don't know that we've found that point yet, you know, and I periodically hear about superhero fatigue or whatnot, but, you know, Marvel is still not the largest franchise out there. I think James Bond and the Western world would be, there still has more James Bond movies made over time then there have been Marvel movies made. Uh, we could go back to the 30s and 40s and look at the universal horror as having a similar structure to the, the cinematic universe in that there were a series of solo films for different monsters. And then periodically they would come together for House of Frankenstein, House of Dracula, Avon and Costello meets Frankenstein, I think has all of the major monsters in it. And then if we go to Japan, look at the scale of the Godzilla cinematic universe. Even if you just count the Godzilla films, there are 40 or 50. And then once you bring in Rodan and Mothra and all of the other giant kaiju monsters, then you're going to see a much larger franchise than we've had to, to date. The difference is though, that at least for the Bond and the Godzilla universes, the links are much looser. You can see any of those films and sort of understand it, but it gains something by seeing it as part of the larger series. But it's not like you've got to see the Godzilla movies in order or you're completely lost in a way that I think now that you to understand the Marvel Cinematic Universe, you probably need to see a whole bunch of movies in order. I feel like I'm of two minds on this, uh, the standalone versus the uh, serialization issue. Because, I mean, um, 
I don't know if it's your phrase or Pierre Levy's phrase, but collective intelligence was a thing you brought up a lot in the book. Yeah, Pierre Levy's, yes. And, and it seems like um, when people want standalone, it's just because they don't want to have a commitment to a longer form or a longer material just because, and there's also the consistency of quality too. But the thing is when everything's consistently good and you do make that commitment, the there's so much more rewarding. And also for the collective intelligence, a lot of times, like say I... Um, I see a new series or something that is based on something that I have partial knowledge of, like it's, I'll have to go to the internet to look up what I'm missing more than not. And there's yeah. the, the, the collective intelligence of the internet can fill in a lot of those gaps for me. It can. And I think that's why these longer serial forms are really thriving right now. Right. So the idea of collective intelligence is that the age of the Renaissance man is over, that no one can know everything that everyone knows some things and that if that if what we want in a network society is to be able to call on the person who know things when we need it right and they're the repository of fan knowledge these various wikis and other sites where people drop things there in the case of marvel i usually go out and we'll find an article that says something like 35 easter eggs in the Doctor Strange movie or whatever, and just read through them. And a lot of them are stuff that links, you know, details dropped in from the other Marvel films or the TV show. A lot of it is the comic book references for those of you who are more hardcore. I frequently need to figure out who the villain is that's previewed in the <laughs> yeah. scene. Definitely. It's like I, my marble lore is not deep enough sometimes for all of the bad, baddies to be identified right away. But the sense of shared knowledge there is precisely what allows these stories to thrive, uh, as is the ability to easily access the material, whether it's streaming or on DVD. If we want to go back and watch something, we can find it. This is why Disney Plus is such a great aid to Marvel and Star Wars fans is it's all there. And so you can go back and see whatever, fill in whatever holes you have with new information. But that is allowing for greater complexity in popular culture, right? I first started thinking about this when Twin Peaks was on television. Okay. In the original Twin Peaks and the critics Newspaper critics were saying Twin Peaks has become so complex, no one can follow it. And if you went to alt TV Twin Peaks, people were saying Twin Peaks has become so simple, it's not interesting anymore. <laughs> and that's because hundreds, if not thousands of people putting their minds together to process a narrative crave more complexity. And then a critic can make sense of it by themselves in their living. That's like when some like promotional ARGs, they put a puzzle up. They think it'll take, you know, days or months for to be solved. And it's usually solved within hours. I think it was a Dexter one that was they thought it would take a while, get closer to the release of the show. And I think it was yeah. hours in that day. The puzzle was solved and all the information was. And now you're getting it. Why we see fewer ARGs, yeah. right? There's a massive outlay of labor they could get consumed really quickly and they're not replayable. So the publicity value has diminished as the novelty is worn off and they just aren't worth the money and time that goes into them anymore because the audience is so much more sophisticated yeah. than the early ARG models would have suggested.
so we talked about some of the a lot of the ways that the the transmedia storytelling is done well with marvel or with uh star wars and stuff but is there a particular example or if you want to share that's where it's it's kind of a case study of what not to do because i mean I, I you said you were a fan of uh, universal monsters and i know there was an attempt to kind of reboot and create that universe and I don't think it went as well as no it did not go well and dc has not gone particularly well either right mm -hmm. and in part i mean i think with the universal they really did not understand the basic dna they swapped out who these monsters were in such a profound way including shifting you know the monsters from the central role to secondary roles and they lost the tone and mood which was a large part of the appeal of the universal mm. horror films. And thirdly, they were trying to merge parts of the franchise that never really belonged together into one continuous narrative. So if you go back to the House of Drank, Dracula House of Frankenstein, they have the European characters, maybe including Invisible Man, but certainly Dracula, Frankenstein, Wolfman all makes sense in a particular corner of the universe, but the creature of the Black Lagoon comes 20 years later and is from South America. The mummy never really gelled with that universe to begin with. So you start with the mummy and envision that as a seed point for bringing all these stories together. It just wasn't very well thought through. The pieces were not going to align and they were not delivering to fans what they were seeking from this particular franchise. Now, DC's problems go well beyond that, including kind of bad casting and an over-reliance on Superman, who was the vanilla ice cream of the DC universe, right? Su Superman is really bland and boring by himself, but you put any <laughs> topping on it, and it's a lot more interesting, right? So. He's definitely hard to get right too. Yeah, so and so to continually to try to get Superman right, rather than going to Green Lantern or any number of other characters that might pull you in a different direction, but which may well be less bland and more interesting to explore. And to get with Superman, you have to start with the vanilla to even build up to the toppings. And yeah, that's right. So you've got to. So if you combine Superman with Green Lantern or with The Flash or with Wonder Woman or Batman or even Hawkman, Superman becomes a whole lot more interesting than Superman by himself. But they keep coming back and trying to do Superman origin films or Batman origin films over and over and over again. And with Batman, we have been stuck eternally in the 1980s when we had the grim gritty batman and it's like every new batman movie feels like it's got to be grimmer and grittier and a lot of us would like them to be more fun and campy and playful have you seen that meme of the cinematography of the batman films just getting darker and darker and then finally yeah. it ends with the next one is a black square <laughs> or black frame exactly i mean why you know when when i heard that they were had made batgirl and it was not a playful 60s romp <laughs> i sort of thought what is the point when you you know why are we going taking all this material that was once a lot of fun and turning it into darker and more angsty things marvel knows how to balance the playful with the human but and doesn't push it so far dark that it becomes you know chore to watch but as far as I was concerned, the angsty emo Batman 
the most recent one was the like the the worst of the Batman films today because it really is taking Zack Snyder and upping the ante. Well, especially after they had Lego Batman with the, uh, the Darkness No Parents song. Yeah, they parodied it perfectly yes. already. <laughs> So give me give me a little more Adam West school Batman. Henry, I have a big question about because uh, you brought up comics, and it seems like comics have to wrangle a bunch of different creators with the editor usually the the editor over a certain number of titles. The success of say at least Marvel has Kevin Feige behind it. You mentioned DC; they've been trying to figure out some head where they have James Gunn, Peter Safran, Lucasfilm has Kathleen Kennedy supposedly. So one. What is the relationship to these producer overheads as creatives and how does it relate to auteurism as we would compete for film specifically as we would traditionally view it? Well, I mean, I, I, I think that um, Marvel has gotten a pretty good balance there, right? Yes, they're trying to integrate them into a story world. But if we go back to the origins of these Marvel characters, when they come into being in the 60s, right? The new myth is, of course, Stan Lee creates everything. But if you go back, the seeds there are these comics were not superhero comics. They were comics from different genres, science fiction, fantasy, detective, true you know, crime, war. Different genres were there, in part because DC was distributing Marvel at that point, and DC didn't want a rival comic, a superhero company. So they smuggle these characters in in these different genres. So they all pull toward different genres. There's been a strong tradition of authorship in comics where someone like a Brian Bendis has a very distinct taste and personality behind him. I'm a big Bendis fan or have been. Same here. And so we come to the films, you know, uh, it's, uh, you know, we're seeing different directors pull those characters in different directions. So. It's fascinating to watch Thor, which starts out as a very mythological film series, get pulled into the kind of Tiki Watiki era of campier versions of those characters and begin to um, integrate with the gun Guardians of the Galaxies world. Or if you look at Ryan Cooter's Black Panther, that has a very distinctive feel that to me logically connects with the other Ryan Coogler films like Fruitville, Fruitville Station or the Creed movies, right? So I think there's plenty of authorial voice in Marvel, yet there is some constraint. Now, if you go back to the original Ultra Theory, it was about directors who pulled in the direction of their personalities while working within genres and within projects that were assigned to them by studios. So there's nothing in the auteur theory that says it's gotta be total auteur cinema, you know, where the, you know, like French New Wave, it's just, we're at another moment where auteur filmmakers are doing interesting things within a studio system with Marvel Disney being the studio, which is why Martin Scorsese's skepticism about Marvel really rankles me. You know, first of all, he's he's saying this isn't really cinema; it's like an amusement park attraction. Well, turns out the earliest films were amusement park attractions, right? You go back to Hale's Tours, where you rode through a film, 
in Tony Island at the turn of the century. So cinema has always been to some degree amusement park attractions. But his second point is that it, there are no characters. Well, I bet I think that thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people writing Cap and Bucky fan fiction on Archive of Iran would disagree that fan fiction is all about taking those characters and fleshing them out in new directions. And so in some way, because we know these characters, because we accrue parts of the characterization across multiple films, characters work differently here than in a Hollywood film of the studio era, but it's still pretty much characters of the kind that Hollywood has always been interested in. Scorsese is also outraged by a genre taking over cinema, but the percentage of contemporary films that are superhero movies are, is much lower than the percentage of films from the 50s that were Westerns or, film, or gangster films, both of which are the genres that Scorsese grew up celebrating as an altruist critic and now still forms the high watermark of film production. This is just a different genre which frankly Scorsese doesn't know how to read. Yeah, see, I think the thing that that that, was, that struck me as completely disingenuous about the comments was one, you, you're commenting on it without seeing the movies. Two, um, it seemed like, not to interpret his, his motives, but he was promoting a movie. And three, um, it just, Scorsese has that, especially on the internet, that high priest vibe of the bringer of higher and low culture. And he's the one that always sanctifies low culture yeah. for him to comment on this. Um, just felt like a betrayal of his own ethos of, as you said, the, the genres in the, um, but you didn't, you, you did, you did get to a really interesting point. I want to ask you about, because whenever I've heard people complain about the amount of superhero movies out there, um, especially when I was in my very, very uh, underground comics phase, I was like, I'm a comic book reader my entire life. I understand, you know, because superheroes took over entire medium of comics for, for a big chunk. And there's something odd about once CGI became good enough and you could visualize this stuff that these have dominated the box office and become the most popular movies of the last 15 to 20 years. I mean, it is very curious. I don't, I mean, I keep hearing critics say, well, these films are totally reliant on special effects. And to me, that's like saying these films are totally reliant on cinematography or these films are totally reliant on editing. It's a technique. It's part of what makes films film. It's part of the content. It's part of the content. It's the content and the form of these films. And yes, we can do spectacular things with special effects. And that has led to things that were once B genre pictures, science fiction, action adventure films, superhero films were once the B pictures or even serials. Superheroes were serial content, the lowest of the low in the 30s and 40s. Right now, they are the biggest money earners. But we've had other genres dominate other phases of history, and this too will pass. And in fact, if you looked, the moment when Scorsese made those comments, Irishman was just opening in a few screens across the country. It re in reality, it was a streaming play, right? He made it for streaming television, Netflix, I think. And... Um, you know, so he was trying to prove to the Academy that this really was film and not television. And he did it by taking a whack at Marvel, 
But his argument was that the superhero films were closing out screen space for his movie. Well, at that point, there were no superhero movies playing anywhere in Los Angeles, one of the few cities where that film was playing. As far as I could see, there was no threat to Scorsese's movies uh, as a result of superhero movies. This is a misunderstanding of the structures of modern box office, right? It was playing in a limited number of theaters because it was going almost immediately to Netflix, not because it was in any way threatened by superhero films. So everything about Scorsese's comments there were disingenuous. And I can say that as someone who admires Scorsese, both as a filmmaker and generally as a critic of Hollywood films, you know, his champion of someone like Bud Butterker the Western director of the 50s. or We did an episode on Bud Bedeker. Bud Bedeker's from uh, the town I'm in. So he was an early champion of those films. And I really admire what he called our attention to there in helping us discover and fund the reconstruction and restoration of any number of vintage films. So he's a champion of cinema, but I don't think he necessarily gets the new genres that have emerged since his youth the the converted culture has the chapter on the fandom behind and the fan creation of harry potter and i think scorsese's like i I seem to remember him commenting that negatively on one of the harry potter movies and when he got pushed back on it he just flat out said i haven't seen these movies yeah yeah it's opportunistic it's self-promotional and it's wrong just simply factually wrong on so many levels what he said in this famous New York Times op-ed piece and originally in the interview for Empire Magazine in the UK. Well, speaking of authorship, I, I was curious to get your thoughts on this too, uh, um, is that there's there are often movie adaptations of of, uh, of video games. And now there's more film adaptations of video games, but they all seem to be, uh, uh, um, they all seem to just focus on adaptation. It's like, and uh, um, like The Last of Us or something. Is there, uh, do, do, you, do you know if there's like, do you know of any video games or uh, the, the way that they play with movies recently that have been more of an extension of the world? Kind of like the Enter the Matrix was. Yeah, I'm still looking for more of that. I'm, I, to be honest, I was totally into game studies and the founding of game studies. I was there and lived in game space for about 10 years. And then I left 14 years ago from MIT to come to USC. So I should say anything I say about games is premised on the fact that I've played very few and I'm not really up to date. So while I'm a champion of games as an art form in the abstract, you know, I don't want to come across like Gene Siskel only in reverse, where I'm hand-waving rather than talking in great detail. So I'm the wrong person to ask about contemporary games, broadly speaking. But I definitely think the room is there for games to be a very rich extension mm-hmm. of it. Or I've always wanted a, spa- a kind of genre of spatial exploration that doesn't necessarily require hardcore gameplay, right? Which is kind of counter to the aesthetic of most hardcore gamers, but 
you know, I think some of the big open sandbox games start to get us in this direction. But I would love to just explore Pandora from the Avatar films. And yes, there would be moments of risk. It would not be realistic mm-hmm. if there wasn't, but I don't necessarily want fast reflex but- button mashing kinds of gameplay so much as I want a 3D modeling of this world that I can immerse in and stage my own adventures in. It's also interesting because in the, the idea of fan fiction was often like written or maybe drawn, but in the world of video games, especially with Steve and like the workshop, you, you can you can author things that are are mods sure. so like you're in like you can have the game and you can fundamentally alter your experience of it not just like as a a, a second product or like a, a thing you read but you can alter the way you play the actual game it's like re-editing a film sort of yeah so i think there's a lot of potential there that hasn't been fully realized now this adaptation problem stems from the fact that games and films are fundamentally different kinds of medium. So when you adapt a film into a game, what you're having to do is convert events on film into spaces on, in a game, right? So a game is a, about spatial architecture or narrative architecture, right? We are unfolding a space. We travel through with different verbs to use Miyamoto's term, different ways of moving through and interacting with the space. In that sense, games are closer to amusement park design than to film storytelling. And I'm not saying that in a negative sense. I'm a great believer in the power of really well-designed amusement park rides. I'm not dismissing them. I'm simply saying that they're both about moving through immersive spaces. And the difference is in a game, you don't have to keep your hands and arms inside the vehicle at all times. You're able to grab things and touch things and interact with things in a much more real way. Now, when you go from a game to a film, you have to add all of those narrative events and characters. And for games to be something we travel through, the character is often a simplified almost a glorified cursor, right? A way of moving through space with certain capacities for action. And on film, we want motivation. We want psychologically rounded characters. And that has historically been harder to achieve. It's also the case that when we play a game character, we tend to give it our own personality. We may be timid, we may be bold, We may go for the violence. We may be slow to violence. We set our own goals. And so we're rarely going to recognize the game character on screen as the game character we play. And we are often likely to be frustrated that we're not controlling that character as we go through it. So the number of game-based film or television shows that have satisfied audiences is very, very thin. Maybe some of the Tomb Raiders, maybe some Mortal Kombat. Uh, I thought the, the Uncharted film was fairly good. Um, there's some others. I, you know, the, the Last of Us seems to be what's getting the buzz at this point. And I don't know if you saw Saturday Night Live's Mario Kart spoof of The Last of Us last weekend, but it is very- It's a me, fun. Mario. Yes, uh, it's a me, Mario. Uh, but it tries to give an HBO dark, crusty quality, a post-apocalyptic quality to Mario Kart. And Last of Us, 
I only saw, I've only seen the first episode. So, but I'm heard episode three is killer. That is the cliche response to that. Uh, you know, I was having trouble not having ever played Last of Us as a game, figuring out when the gameplay sequences were and when the cutscenes were, but you still feel like there, ought, there still feels like this is a series of cutscenes brought to the screen particularly well. Yeah, the cutscenes being so cinematic. Last of Us in particular, um, the the third episode is the first divergence through uh, the game, but particularly in the pilot, uh, I remember really feeling that the game was better than the the pilot at that point, just because the game played with subjectivity in such a, especially in that opening sequence of the game, so interestingly, it was like one of the most interesting things about the game to me, and. When the show happened, they did it, they adapted it well. They adapted it faithfully and dramatically for a TV show. If you've never seen the game, but just playing with the medium, it was better in the game. Yeah, I can. And it's also a very cinematic game to begin with, where it's in terms of adaptation. But I, I'm interested to see that the third episode is an extension because I was thinking, like, I'm asking or wondering, hoping for extensions between the two. But then I guess you could say the old Mario movie was pretty much an extension. And I guess that's you can go that direction as well. Well, yes, but you don't want an extension that totally violates the spirit of the original. Like the old Mario movie did. Right? Right. That was an extension yeah. only because you couldn't make it make sense in relation yeah. to the source. Right? It was bizarro. Like the He-Man and Masters of the Universe movie that came out about that same time period. There was just a contempt for source material at that point in Hollywood practice and people just took it and hijacked it. Whereas I think some of the others that I think I mentioned are truer to the spirit of the source material and take it in interesting directions. My big argument for the success of Marvel is, is it mainly started with, I mean, Blade technically, but the Raimi Spider-Man where it's just like they started adapting comics yes. and respecting source material. That's right. And I think if you look at something like Dune, the real accomplishment there was actually taking the novel seriously as source material after decades of film adaptations that held source material in contempt. Look at the Will Smith iRobot for something that just took a title and ran off with it. Uh, you know, there's there's been very few screen adaptations of science fiction novels which actually took the novel seriously in the way that say peter jackson takes lord of the rings seriously in adapting it to the screen and i think we need to get to the place where video games are taken seriously with as source material without it being the 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 kind of teacher's guide to the novel right the masterpiece theater version where every line feels like it's been analyzed on the blackboard for generations and the characters know that. And so they deliver it with particular import rather than seeming spontaneously to emerge from the mouth of a motivated character. So we don't want to make video games sacred, but we do want to get to the place where we don't just randomly change things to be changing them and where if we're changing them, we're changing them to bring new insights into the character and situation. I think one of the problems with Last of Us is we've seen so many post-apocalyptic 
kind yeah. of stories over the last three or four years. Or so many zombie stories in general exactly. in Walking Dead. So after watching Station Eleven, I'm finding myself having trouble getting into The Last of Us, even if it is a very good game adaptation by all repeat. You mentioned Dune. Uh, should we get to talking about what your current work is? Sure. Yeah, so you are mainly, you, you, you seem to have an interesting right now in production design and art direction. Well, at that's, least that's what you're teaching. One of those areas, yes. I just got through teaching a course for the cinema school at USC that is focused on imaginary worlds. And the central premise is that over the last 20 years, world making has become really absolutely central to the way Hollywood conceptualizes most of the blockbusters. That is, the franchise films are, the art of world building is very much there. More information is about the world is contained in the film than can be utilized within a single story. And I had a talk to a screenwriter who said, in the old days we pitched a story because you had to have a great story to make a great film. And then we pitched a character because you needed a great character to support multiple sequels and prequels and so forth. And he says, now we pitch worlds because a world will support multiple characters in multiple stories across multiple media. So as this move toward transmedia goes along, world building is absolutely central to that experience. And in taking the students through this history of world, imaginary worlds, we see this move from mise-en-scene as in some ways decorative, the exotica of, uh, say, William Cameron's Menzies set designs for either the versions of Thief of Baghdad that he works on, right, that paved the way for Disney's Aladdin, or the set designs for Wizard of Oz are a little less decorative and a little more grounded, but they're still, you know, relatively sparse in terms of the details about that world that they contain, particularly compared to L. Frank Baum's books, where he really goes into a great deal of detail and over 17 novels really fleshed out Oz as a world. Then we cut, you know, as we go forward, we get, say, by the 50s to the point where the mise-en-scene becomes a projection of the characters. And the case I would use would be Captain Nemo and the Nautilus in Disney's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, where we see Nemo's personality in every detail of that ship. But when we get to Blade Runner with Sid Meyers, Sid Mead, and then Minority Report with Alex McDowell, we start to see the production designers adding to these worlds things that are never fully utilized in the story and that are not about the character, but are about the larger system those characters travel through. And I would say from Minority Report forward, we will see more and more depth in world building. Now, as that happens, I, would, I wanna argue that the production designer becomes more and more part of the authorial force behind the movie. I, you know, if I'm being polemical, I'll say that is as important or not more important than the scriptwriter. But even if I don't want to be polemical, I'll say as important okay. as the scriptwriter or the director, the production designer is the person who fills the screen with details that hint at the world beyond the individual characters and their story. 
And world building is the art of production design. I think with like specifically the Blade Runner example, I remember, um, um, oh, the, who's the final screenwriter on it? Uh, uh, David Peoples saying specifically, he had a story where like uh, when he got the job for Blade Runner, he, he looked at the script and he's like, I can't do anything more about this. And one of the producers was like, oh, we're not asking you for your ideas. You just have to interpret really Scott's ideas. Mm. Like this seems like an interpretation of the power of screenwriters and production designer and who has the agency to creative agency on a project too. Well, we did an in-depth interview with Rick Carter for uh, our podcast, How Do You Like It So Far? And he's very clear that his work has different feel if he's working with Zemeckis or Cameron or Abrams or Spielberg. He's done the most work with Spielberg going back to amazing stories. But nevertheless, we can also trace his preoccupations through all of those films. So he's, for example, has shared that he grew up loving Wizard of Oz and that that story is the urtext for many of the films, production designs he's worked on. So to the point where both of the Avatar films have a line of, we're not in Kansas anymore. <laughs> which was thrown in by the scriptwriter specifically to acknowledge that crossing over point between the Schumann world and the world of the Navi, which for Carter is very much rooted in uh, The Wizard of Oz. I've also heard Cameron say that's his favorite movie of all time. Yeah, of so, uh, uh, it's, it's a, but we see these Wizard of Oz moments in the Spielberg films Carter works on as well. Uh, so it's not just the director loves the film and therefore the production designers allowed to reference it. It's, it goes deeper than that. And there really is some recurring motifs that I think the more we understand who these production designers are, what their ideas are, we can start to understand a new form of authorship that's expressed not through story or character, but through world building and so forth. And we can look at filmmakers. I think of Tim Burton and Zack Snyder as both filmmakers who are better world designers, world builders in their films than they are storytellers. I think I'm pretty disappointed consistently with the stories and both of those filmmakers work, but I'm always excited when I see the trailers because you can see the incredible amount of attention to production design and world building that run through through those films. So what we did in this class was really sat down with a range of production designers, costume designers, game designers, and talk through the design of these films and the role the designers play. So one of the things we talked about that I learned a lot from was this concept of the set piece, right? Which is something we throw at a lot, the opening sequence in a James Bond movie or one of those action sequences in Mission Impossible films will get called set pieces. Well, it turns out that's literally the case, that what often happens is the location scout find, is told to go to these cities and find interesting locations, and then the production designer studies them and says, what can we do with this in this film, and designs a sequence and the scriptwriter is told to string them together like a string of pearls uh, and motivate the character's movement from one set piece to the next. But they originate with the set, not with the story. And that's what gives that kind of chunky feel to a lot of contemporary action films. 
I remember Pauline Kael commenting, particularly Hitchcock seemed to invent, invent that with having a screenwriter string together set pieces, specifically North by Northwest. Yeah. I mean, Hitchcock loved being a tourist. And so you see in those films, the set, you know, the locations motivate the action. And it, it's true of, I went on a tour of Vertigo San Francisco once, and you can just see how these locations in San Francisco give rise to key elements of Vertigo as a plot. This weekend, I watched Sherrod and um, the Cary Grant, Aubrey Hepburn film. And the, the folks in TCM, the folks in the armchair were saying, this is the most Hitchcockian film directed by anyone other than Hitchcock. I've heard that phrase before too, yeah. Hitchcockian in any sense other than its reliance on these set pieces, that it's framed around locations around Paris and that play with location is really the central Hitchcockian thing. There's a little bit of a MacGuffin going on there, but there's not, you know, I, I, we don't have the icy blonde. We don't have the man falsely accused. I mean, there are all these things that I think of as Hitchcock that I would say uh, De Palma is much closer to Hitchcock that, you know, any number of other directors hit Hitchcockian moments uh, more often. And the real Hitchcock is Alma Hitchcock, who <laughs> yeah. have some of those elements well before Alfred Hitchcock ever made his first film. So if you go back and see Alma Hitchcock movies, they're already there. On your podcast, when we were talking to Alex McDowell, I think one thing he said interest, that's talking about the author or who creates uh, uh, the authorship of a film is that film is such a visual medium. And yes, strange, it was strange to him that the starting document was a written text. Yeah, and, and that makes sense. And I'm sure production designers are involved earlier and earlier. And and it was interesting to see you talk about the set pieces because that does feel like a more authentic sort of, or at least have the the, the conversation between the two just because because a production designer can make you know uh, a set and then the screenwriter can see it. And then there's a conversation, there's a back and forth. He gets inspired by that, the director does. And, and I feel like it, it is interesting that it, he was absolutely correct that why does such a visual medium start with? And I, I mean, I, you know, McDowell will tell you that with Minority Report, there wasn't a script when he was brought on. And if you go to Philip K. Dick's short story, it's pretty sparse in its description. He was brought in to design a world where the story might take place. And many of the key sequences in that film are these set pieces that really start like the vertical car chase along this up and down the building or uh, the, the scene where the personalized advertising outs the protagonist as he's trying to move anonymously through space. Those are details that came out of the world design. And in that case, he literally brought together leading experts on the future of advertising, on new interfaces, on gestural interface technology from the MIT Media Lab. Um, crime detection, um, archi urban architecture, transportation, all of those experts came together and ran a boot camp for more than a week and developed the Bible for the world well before there was a script. I guess that's true. TV shows often have Bibles that they created pitch with the pilot. And now I think every, because you're not really, I guess you're not just pitching a single story, especially to a studio, you have to pitch the potential of other stories. That's right. And 
So I don't think that you're going to find very many scripts these days for genre films, at least, that don't come with a transmedia pitch and even more often sequels and prequels built into the logic. So not that they will be made if the movie fails, but if the movie succeeds, they have a blueprint of how to break the storytelling across multiple parts. And the world is as much as the characters are the continuing elements that hold those scripts together. Oh, podcasting. Um, so the, the, um, in our emails, uh, we have, you mentioned specifically um, the project you're working on, either we're working on or are working on right now is about boys and permissive imagination. Yes. So I'm working on a project book that's almost done, uh, hopefully come out next year, which really looks at what happens to childhood in America after the end of World War II. And the shorthand for this is, of course, the baby boom. Okay. So baby boom demographic shifts result in an explosion of media for children and an explosion of media for parents. And the parents' medium, media is an advice literature primarily that is telling them how to raise this generation of children. And there is a shift in public understanding of child psychology, of the nature of children's play, so forth that's taking place around that time. And that's maybe represented by Benjamin Spock or Margaret Mead or Eric Erickson or Piaget. All of these thinkers about children are writing for parents of the baby boom generation. So what I'm trying to do is put those in dialogue with each other. So on the media side, I'm looking at Dr. Seuss. Uh, I'm looking at Dennis the Menace, Lost in Space, Flipper, all, Johnny Quest, all of these shows about boys. And they tend to be overwhelmingly about boys, right? So if you go back to the Victorian era, the desired child was a girl. It's Dorothy, it's Wendy, it's Rebecca of Sunnybrook Farm, it's Anne of Green Gables, all of these girls from the late 19th, early 20th century. If you look in the 50s and 60s, it's a boy. And the boy represents an idealized American who is boisterous and exploratory and bold and messy and a little off kilter and so forth, full of energy. So they were boys' stories. And it's also the case that educational philosophy of that period said girls will watch and read boys' books, but boys will not read girls' okay. books. So there was a bias in publishing toward telling boys' stories. So that's how boyhood enters into this. But there are any number of works that I'm going back to from my own childhood. I like to call this book my second childhood book. Okay. Because first of all, I've written one book on childhood already. But secondly, uh, because it really is a second childhood, and I'm going back to stories that meant something to me when I was a boy. But trying to look at them through adult eyes and understand how they might have molded and shaped my generation. Are you doing stuff on like um, Seduction of the Innocent and the delinquency stuff, like Frederick Wertheim? A little bit. I think Wertheim's an interesting figure in all of this. His views tend to be a bit more conservative about ideal boyhood 
than was typical of the period. Maybe the reason we have a Wortham is parents permitted their children to consume a broader range of media than previous generations had. Mm, okay. And Wortham is trying to rein that in or warn these permissive parents on the dangers of too much permissiveness. So I would put him on that side of the spectrum. Now, Wortham himself is a rather complicated character because in addition to going after comics, there are two other phases of his career that get forgotten. Well, three. One is he comes from the Frankfurt School, which was a Marxist school. He's not a conservative in a political sense, but he is in a moral sense. Secondly, he did a lot of the research on the impact of segregation on the psyches of black children out of his urban-based practice as a psychologist. And third, at the end of his career, he wrote a book about fanzines in which he celebrates fanzines as this really rich form, including comic book focused fanzines. Really? Much surprise of comics fans of that period, right? Yeah, because he's he's always portrayed as the one that almost destroyed the comic medium when it like in almost cut sales by himself. And and I mean, I know there's people that have given him more uh, revisionist and said like yeah i knew there was a little bit of a revisionist take on him but no i you know if i'm there's a piece down in this book that i want to write uh, looking at some of the materials in the archive when he did this book on fanzines which i'm considered one of the founders of fandom studies as an academic and this was 15 years before i wrote my book wow he wrote this book which is the, as far as i can tell is the earliest book ever on fanzines this is a moment in time where fanzines are ordered directly from the authors. So here you're, you're a fan editor and you get a letter in the mail and a check in the mail from Frederick Wortham, you know, five years after Seduction of the Innocents. How do you respond? And a lot of them responded the way you might expect. They tore up the check, sent it back with an angry letter, and he wrote them back five, six page long letters explaining what he was trying to do and why he is actually open to fanzines and begging them to send them a copy and sell him a copy of their fanzines. This is the same point, though, that if you find in his papers, you also find these bolo balloons with his face on it that were sold at Comic-Cons where people could punch Frederick Wortham in the face, right? So, but he actually liked comics fanzines even if he doesn't like the commercial publication of comics. And it's because he sees a greater diversity of perspectives emerging around these fanzines as not a centralized publishing media. It's not all dependent on two publishers and so forth. So obviously there was more than two then, but my point is not a, not a concentrated media. For him, the dispersed grassroots nature well, the irony being is that like the response to at least what the threat of Congress was, I know Alan Moore makes this point that um, uh, when they came up with the comics code, they just designed it so they could get EC out of business or kneecap EC. That was part of what they were trying to do and why some of the other publishers went along with them because EC was eating their lunch commercially. And if they could take them down, then they thought they could settle back to the hierarchy of comics publishers that had existed before. And to some degree, the comic code locked in a hierarchy of publishers that results in DC and Marvel still dominating the form to the present day. Um, now, the other interesting thing I am looking at is this woman, Josette Frank. And Josette Frank is the person that 
Wortham most aggressively goes after. She was Teddy Roosevelt's secretary. She was a leading progressive, worked for Jane Addams. She had fought for health care and psychological care for inner city youth and against delinquency her entire life. But she consulted with comics companies, including helping to create classic illustrated. And when okay. she testified against Wortham, saying the comics had a more broader range of stories than he's suggesting, he slammed her as an apologist for the comics industry. But she was a leading permissive writer who had a lot of incredibly useful advice for parents about how to engage children with media, how to talk through with use media diagnostically to figure out what it is that kids were disturbed by, compelled by, ask questions about the media your kids consumed, and in the process, learn to understand their emotional needs better. Not to shut anything down. She says that what we put in the kids' lives is more important than what we take out of them. Oh, that's such a good so, phrase. Beautifully phrased, right? So she was not about taking things out. Yeah. She was about putting more things in, hence Classic Illustrated or some of the other interventions she did in comics. But she's got banged up by both sides. I was listening to an episode, uh, I think it was the um, one of your podcasts, one of the ones about all the uh, mouse banning of Art Spiegelman's mm -hmm. mouse. Uh, yes. And I was thinking, there, I, I don't know if it's a Scott McCloud theory, but or it's, there's actual scientific data behind it, but they were talking about the educational um, uh, prowess that a comic can do because the argument was that it engages uh, visual and language systems in both, si both sides of the brain. So it gets both sides of the brain working in a way that also no medium can do. Yeah, I th I, I've heard that that argument is, seems to be scientifically validated. Um, it's almost the exact inverse of... Uh, of Wortham's arguments about how comics are read, where he thought the pictures so dominated the medium that kids didn't really rely on words at all in his account, that we just tell they're purely pictorial studies. And so it came at the expense of learning how to read. Whereas today, librarians often argue that comics and graphic novels have been keys, key tools for getting reluctant readers invested in reading anything, right? So reading the words and pictures together provides a scaffolding that makes it possible to develop better cognitive reading skills and eventually paves the way for a broader range of reading experiences. Mm -hmm. I know when I first read this, the description in the email that you said boys and permissive imagination that my brain immediately went to current situation of boys. And, you know, there's that phrase, the crisis with boys right now of, um, uh, and the crisis of masculinity right now. Yeah. I don't know if there was any overlap there too. Well, I think there's potentially some, uh, but yeah, that, I mean, that discourse is often about getting back to risk-taking and unsafe space. The sort of sense of needing to have everything perfectly safe. Don't allow a kid to play with an actual hammer and nails or don't have a playground equipment they could fall off of, have everything padded. And the argument is that, in fact, we need to get back to risk-taking. And that would have been a familiar argument for writers of this 50-60 period of time, right? But so would have been 
uh, taking seriously children's gender identifications today, right? The trans, you know, non-binary identifications of kids and whether kids should be allowed to be called alternate pronouns at school, all the stuff that Ron DeSantos is against feels very much of a piece to the approach to parenting that was of the 50s and 60s when we were told to listen closely to kids, that kids' bodies know what they need, that kids' emotions will show, will come out if we listen and engage with them, and that the goal is a kind of empathic identification with children's needs in order to help them find the resources necessary for them to become the person they want to become. And that feels to me like the arguments being made for why kids who feel identification with a different gender should be allowed to use, you know, pronoun, different pronouns or cross-dress or whatever as they think about the option down the line of gender readjustment. Uh, what is there, how much overlap was there between um, this work and the uh, work of, uh, of the production design art direction studies too? Because you mentioned the 50s and 20,000 leagues in their sea, particularly. Yeah, I mean, the film that I taught in the Imaginary Worlds class that's most closely aligned with this project is the film 5,000 Fingers of Dr. T. I was thinking Dr. Seuss, too. The film that Dr. Seuss did production design for and worked on the script for and really is a live-action musical that is as close to the core of Dr. Seuss is any film adaptation of Seuss today, right? Much more so than the recent retellings of Cat in the Hat or uh, Christmas or so forth. Uh, It really does capture how Seuss saw the world. And it's a film he made coming out of World War II. He had been in the Frank Capra propaganda unit for the Signal Corps during the war. And the more you look at that unit, it is full of children's creators, right? Eric Knight, who created Lassie Come Home, is working there. Stan Bernstein, who would do the Bernstein Bear books, is part there. Chuck uh, Chuck Jones is part of that unit. I was going to ask if Chuck Jones, he was in there too, right? uh, Ray Harryhouse. All of those people, uh, what is it? Uh, The guy who wrote Ferdinand the Bull. Anyway, all of these writers and media makers who would shape children's culture after the end of World War II were all part of this unit. So I've sat down at the Seuss Papers at UC San Diego, and you can watch the script move from being about the war to being about peacetime concerns of families, draft by draft. And that there's a lot of Kind of, there's a way in which Dr. Terwilliker's, played by Hans Conried in this film, is meant to be a Hitler-like figure with his followers goose-stepping and their settings, shots that are taken directly from Triumph of the Will, the Lenny Riefenstahl propaganda film for the Third Reich, and so forth. So he's trying to explore power by adults as something that is dictatorial. And you have this incredible song in this film about just because we're closer to the ground and slider pound by pound, you know, you should not push us little folks around. This kind of anthem of permissiveness that really was his 
celebration of children and the rights of children. And the film ends with a riot, in effect, where kids are rebelling against adults, ripping pages out of their textbooks, stomping on the piano, so forth, which could almost look forward to the 60s, <laughs> this same generation of kids in the 60s occupying uh, the administration buildings on college campuses, right? So it's a really fascinating film. And it also has this obsession with atomic technology, right? So the boy builds a sound catching device and Dr. Terwilliker's timidly ask, is it atomic? And he says, yes, very atomic. I, uh, I, I showed, I, um, confession, pirating confession. I burned a copy of that because it was hard to find for my niece for uh, a Christmas or a birthday when she was five years old. And at the time I was interning for a really cool director and I didn't really like, I told the director I was doing this and he just kind of looked at me. And he's like, isn't that too much for a five-year-old? It's intense. I saw it maybe at six or seven and I just had some of those images burned in my brain, but it was only in grad school that I figured out what the film had been, but I remembered those sequences so much. It is an intense ride. Uh, probably is aimed older than that, but it's still an incredible film and such an empowering story for young people. I think I discovered it because at, um, Steven Soderbergh used to have a varying list of his top 10, or it was, it was from the Sex Lies videotape uh, journal book. He had his list of it, and that was where I first heard of it, but it was in his top five, top 10 at one point in the late 80s, and that was the first I heard about that. Certainly would be on mine as well. Um, it's a film I've probably seen more times than anything other than maybe Wizard of Oz. Because uh, I used to show it every year at MIT. And we would show it and I'd introduce it by reading from some of Seuss's works and making some of the arguments that are now finding their way into the book. But Seuss is an, one of my favorite writers. And I just keep finding new things when I really look closely at Seuss's stories. They're anything but simple. And when you put them in an historical logic, we, we, we see them scattered on the nursery floor without any sense of what was early, what was late, or you know, when they were written or why they were written. But once the more you know about them, the more interesting Seuss becomes as a writer, and in this case, a filmmaker. I think so. The more I've read of your work, the more the thing I find really heartening is that you seem to one you 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 embrace changes of media, uh, you you embrace them in a way that doesn't come from fear or there's generally sometimes this this um, undercurrent in some writings about this where there's always that fear that the next generation is going to be the generation that doesn't have a human soul yeah. and that is going to lose everything, and you completely right the opposite about that your harry potter chapter in particular in convergence culture was really just this is a great source of creativity how much of that is coming from your teaching and constantly being around young people well a lot of it i mean i was writing that book while i was at mit uh well i was technically took a year off from mit and was living in a cabin in the woods but uh that was my thorough moment right but i had been teaching at mit for up for 15 16 years at that point I was housemaster in an MIT dorm. I was constantly all day and night seeing what young people were doing with this new technology, 
and deeply excited by it. And with that Harry Potter chapter, I was connecting with teenagers who were doing remarkable things, whether it's writing fan fiction novels or running school newspapers for Hogwarts or standing up to the studio over copyright, you know, learning new ways of learning through, you know, Harry Potter. Now, this had a twist in the end, as I'm sure you know, that when yeah. Rowling, uh, you know, came out as anti-trans, uh, that affected a whole generation of young people, many of whom had discovered their own sexualities and their own queer sexualities by their engagement with Harry Potter, right? This is about a boy who's not only closeted, but he lives in a cupboard underneath the stairs, right? And yeah. so the metaphors of queerness that run through Harry Potter was very real. And um, one of the people I've written about is a woman named Jack, uh, a man now named Jackson Bird, who discovered, how do I do this grammatically, that she was a trans male uh, and has since written a book called Sorted, which is about how Harry Potter helped sort out some confusion in her adolescence about being you know, her gender and led her, her to become a trans transgender male. And the result of that was that what she, he, Jackson wrote an op-ed piece for the New York times explaining that, that Rowling could not take from them what the, their experience had been of the story, that the story empowered them. Their relate, it was their community that was empowered by the story around the story and that just because the author was not as good a person as they thought they were uh, was no reason to abandon the story but that they would think twice before they spent money in support of rowling per se okay so there's been a lot of sorting through but but the piece that i'm of that story that i'm telling in the book is about the potter wars and the attempts by schools to censor the books on the one hand and by the studios to exercise copyright control to shut down fan fiction and fan websites on the other. And at the center of both of them were young people fighting for a better society. As we wind down, I just want to like, I'm glad Raymond showed me some of your work just because I think one of the most interesting things about it is like, I'm going to get this phrase wrong, but the, you know, the, there's this argument on the internet right now that the answer to so much free speech is, uh, I'm not getting this quote right, but something like more free speech. And I feel like you've embraced the thing where it's like, you're not to take away media from children or you're not to take away media from adults either. You want more media. Your answer to everything is more media and more content that will just has, that enlivens more conversation. Yeah, I think the conversation is what's important. Right. The idea that screen time, that we regulate screen time and that makes us good parents is a cop out. Right. It, it treats all media content as if it was the same stuff. Right. There's some some sort of goo that's you, you know, rather than saying media content does a variety of things. We use media for multiple purposes. We turn towards stories that express something fundamental about what we're trying to sort through about the universe and the key is dialogue conversation, whether it's online conversation or conversation between parents and kids. One of my book projects is an advice book for parents about how to have conversations 
with your kids around media, because I don't think regulating screen time is going to work long term as a strategy. And it shows a lack of understanding of what media is and why it matters. What's the gist? Because I, I was thinking the attention economy is the thing I was thinking about right now, where it just seems like so many um, social, like a lot of smartphone stuff are hijacking our brains. But at the same time, that doesn't necessarily have to be the case either. You know? Well, I mean, if you sit down with a kid at an early age and do with a media product what parents have been taught to do with picture books, right? Ask questions, encourage speculation, you know, explore how it relates to the real world, have conversation around a picture book. Well, you can do the same thing with a TV show or a film, except and now that we have the ability to freeze frame, to fast forward, to rewind, we could break it apart analytically and encourage kids to make connections, which is necessary for kids to learn how to comprehend more complex narratives, but also is a vehicle by which parents discover the inner emotional lives of their children. And the more you have that conversation at an early age, the more you can hold on to it through the various phases of a child's development and learn to be fans together, learn to speculate. I know when my son was in his adolescence was when Survivor was first coming on the air and we taught him an awful lot about human relationships by studying strategy and tactics that Survivor players were doing. Why are some players disliked? Why are other players more effective at achieving their goals? If you talk through that, there was a lot about navigating adolescence and clicks and bullying that Survivor could be used to have conversations. And at one level removed from the immediate personal stuff that maybe he wouldn't want to talk to his parents about, but it was not far from the surface yeah. when we're discussing the show. So that's what I really believe makes for good parenting today, not regulating media, but discussing media, engaging with creative conversations around media, learning to write beyond the story on the screen and do what good fan fiction does and speculate, explore, expand, extend outward the story in all directions. You ha Yeah, you had the chapter on Survivor. Uh, my last question is you also have the chapter on uh, The Matrix. If you were writing Convergence Culture today, how would you update it with the fourth Matrix movie? Good question. I mean, I think The Matrix movie started out to be a revamp for a new media environment, it ends up being very self-reflexive about games and game narratives and play and the building being held hostage by a trans by Warner Brothers Warner Media. Yeah, so I think it's a very interesting film. I've only seen it once, and I really feel like I need to see it more times and really systematically analyze it. But the idea that this mythology built up around the original characters as the public took ownership of them through the game. And we now are seeing other actors playing the parts, very self-consciously playing parts of archetypes we saw in the original Matrix, says something about the way we play with media and our culture. And I think that's something that I'd really like to understand its perspective on more fully but i've only as i said i've only seen it once but i was very intrigued by what i was seeing yeah i mean i i i'm i'm a 
big uh, a defender of every piece of Matrix media after the first movie. So I there's, totally there's more- like it. Yeah, I love the Animatrix. I love the comics. Uh, particularly, I'm a big Ch- Paul Chadwick fan, who I mentioned earlier. Yeah. His work for those Matrix comics is really amazing. My uh, my very very first interview. You have the Peter Bag uh, one in there. Oh Peter yeah. Bag. My very first interview in high school was Peter Bag. Ooh, yeah, I would uh, enjoy meeting him. Yes, uh, Henry Jenkins, thank you so much for doing this. Thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Great talking well, to you. Well, it was a pleasure talking to you. And uh, 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 thank you. My pleasure.